0: You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Good morning, Father Jeffrey. How are you? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. It's a little bit of a dreary day this morning, but it's looking like it's going to clear up.
1: Yeah, it's hard to know. And we've had such a mild winter. It's, um, you know, by the time people are going to be listening to this, hopefully well behind us. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. You know, sometimes you look at the sky and you think, how can there not be a God? You know, it's just so beautiful indeed indeed, but some- some people still you know uh have this uh the idea that there there is no god and and I think that that's our topic today is atheism, but atheism in particular, as it relates to maybe orthodox ways of thinking about God because what's been really frustrating for me in my younger days when I would watch you know YouTube debates between Christian apologists and you know evangelical atheists that they would have these debates and the the, you know, very often the atheist would in the debate would frame up an argument or or present a framework as in uh but but sometimes not even knowing that they were using this framework or this worldview, right? Um, this way of seeing the world. And they would say that, well, this is the way that God has to function within this framework. And the Christian people that were responding, more often than not, almost exclusively, just accepted the framework that the uh, atheist presented and then tried to answer within the atheist's framework on how God could you know, exist. Mm-hmm. And that, that got me really frustrated because I think in the East, in Eastern Orthodoxy, um, we, we tend to maybe think about God in, in a slightly different way. I'm not sure if you've had similar experiences, Father Jeffrey, of being frustrated at these debates, but uh, that was my experience.
1: Yeah, I think I've had a tendency to just tune them out because I've never seen them as being particularly interesting. Um, You know, there there is actually a whole Western tradition, philosophical, theological, uh, that is all about proving the existence of God. And I think just, you know, so we don't blame the atheists to begin with here, we could actually blame you know, the Christians and theists who have set out on that track to begin with, because, of course, that's just a red flag to a bull <laughs> for those who don't believe in God, right? Because So any attempt to prove the God's existence will necessarily, according to Newton's law, lead to an equal and opposite <laughs> reaction here right. of, of those who will just happily disprove it. So it's hard to know who's framed the argument in the first place. Um, but what I really like about the Eastern tradition is that, there isn't really anybody who ever sets out to prove the existence of God. Uh, that's just one of the givens, and um, it's it's never up for for debate, discussion, or, or or anything along those lines.
0: Do you think it never was up for discussion because the countries in which Orthodoxy was dominant? Didn't go through something like the Enlightenment? Like, do do you think that in the West, the traditions of proving God's existence for Christians was actually a reaction against uh, uh, atheism or deism or anything like that?
1: Possibly. But I think, I mean, the, the arguments for the existence of God go back to the Middle Ages. And so you could actually argue the other way around. It's the philosophical tradition that you know on the one hand encourage people to try to prove the existence of god that same philosophical tradition would ultimately culminate in the enlightenment right so it's actually it's not the enlightenment brought these debates about but the debates brought the enlightenment in in some way uh it's just a different way of setting out kind of tackling the world and our existence you know within it I, i think there's a there's a real sense in in the Christian East, uh, you know, in the Patristic tradition, in the spiritual tradition, that I mean, you couldn't possibly do this. God belongs to you know a category that is beyond all human categories. So you can't even make him part of any human argument. You couldn't, you know, capture him within any human thought or word in any sort of way. It's probably the, that apophatic, you know, that, that negative speaking or speaking away from uh, spiritual theological tradition that we have that we can credit, you know, ultimately for, for this. So the idea that even you can't say God is love without also saying God is not love because the love that God is, it it transcends any concept or word or thought that we might have of, of what love could be. So, uh, you know, even in kind of you know unquestionable statements from the scriptures like that there's a there's a kind of moving away from somehow limiting god in any way whatsoever and putting god into an argument would be a limitation on god it's to lose i mean your first point there was you know to accept the framework of of thought of you know those who would dispute god's existence well to put god within a syllogism is precisely to accept a framework that you know, it, it it just doesn't work. You know, that's why you classically get these ridiculous arguments like, well, if God is all powerful, why can't he create a rock that he can't pick up, you know, then he's not all powerful, right? Or, you know, if God, you know, created all things, who created God? I mean, it just starts to become ridiculous, right? The, these kinds of syllogistic, you know, ways of looking at, at the thing. So, by excluding the possibility that God even exists within arguments like that, the East just sets out in a in a completely different way. And that way would be knowing God in a different way altogether, right? Knowing God by our participation in the grace and life that he shares with the world. And so it sets you on a trajectory of, of prayer and sacrament and worship rather than one of, you know, thinking God into all kinds of arguments or, or clever statements.
0: There's a beautiful term used in Orthodox worship, which is uncircumscribable, mm-hmm. right? We, we describe God as being uncircumscribable and, and circumscribing, circum being around and scribing means to write, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think what you were just talking about there with language, I think um, that point eludes us a lot of the time because we think that our language correlates perfectly with like i don't know objective or holistic reality or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, whereas our, our language is indeed a um a border it is a frame it is something that lets us identify what's within but doesn't actually really let us identify what is without um and and language can be very constricting in that in that way um so yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. I there is I remember Father Hopko mentioning in a talk that there was a father. Uh, it may have been one of the Gregories who who said, you know, maybe paraphrasing here, something along the lines of, you know, taken to their conclusion, taken to their logical conclusion, every single word in the scriptures about God is ultimately a lie.
1: Mm-hmm. Because if you, know, you allow them to be circumscribing words, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think what it, what it actually teaches us to treat. You know the words of scripture as is actually evocative words i mean they they belong to that category of opening up vistas of relationship and and of you know entering into a mystery rather than saying, "You know here in these words we've captured you know the nature of god or or you know the characteristics of God, or somehow you know if you know this, then you have belief, you have faith Well, scriptures actually point in a completely different direction and they say you know, you know, read what it says about God. You know, God, were you there when the world was created? You know, God asked Job. You know, don't even begin this process of trying to think through, you know, who I am, what my nature is, what my purposes are. It's actually far more about our being placed in a position to receive reality as it is and to enter into, you know, it, it, it's us who are circumscribed. You know that's that's the point you know we enter as a community of faith into the circumscription that is God's life and uh you know actually there's a, a you know interesting we have words that come from different places obviously in English vocabulary and everything we don't necessarily use them this way, but the the word understand actually is quite clever if you know we we don't use it in this sense at all, but if you think about it it means literally to to stand under something to stand within something to be circumscribed by it that Scriptures lead us to that kind of understanding, not to comprehension, you know, the idea of wrapping your mind around something so that whole it's a relational thing about how we can even know anything and particularly you know God and I think if we take the words of scripture not as circumscription but as an opportunity to stand under or stand within the mystery of who God is and what creation is because ultimately what we could you know if it's true of God then it's true probably of a lot of the things in this world as well that come you know out of his loving outpouring of love and cre- and and creative grace you know for the world and you know we we're very arrogant in i think sometimes we think that because we have the capacity for thought, because we have the capacity for language that somehow, you know, we can, we have this kind of one to one relationship between us and reality, you know, as it is. But, you know, even scientists have learned that that's not how it works. It's a lot more complicated than that. There is no objective truth, you know, to, to, to be, you know, kind of comprehended in that sense. It's far better to adopt this. You know, self-critical stance of you know there are limits on our knowledge of anything, but certainly, let alone you know the, the mystery of God, and um, and so yeah, I, I would say let's use scriptures and, and the fact that we read them in worship should be suggestive of this too, that they are to point us into a mystery rather than trying to give us comprehensive knowledge of divinity
0: or of deity. So yeah, we talked about language being. Being an act of circumscribing, right? And, and that arguments for the existence of God ultimately are acts of binding God to us in a certain way um, or uh, comprehending God as opposed to kind of understanding in the model mm. that you were just mentioning. Um, but at the same time, I think that there is use to apologetics and to these arguments. Uh, for example, uh, in my own personal life, speaking from experience, uh, you know, in my emerging adulthood, C.S. Lewis was a very um important figure for me in my in my Christian journey. Um, just knowing that there is a strong intellectual tradition uh, in Christianity both east and west um, gave me something to hold onto. Um so yeah, and and he in mere Christianity uses lots of these arguments, for example, the moral argument for the existence of God. So um you know, we don't have to get into what the argument was, but I guess, Father Jeffrey, what would be your perspective on the usefulness of apologetics and arguments for the existence of God and for defending God through these intellectual avenues?
1: Yeah, I, I think we need to distinguish a couple of different approaches here. And I mean, C.S. Lewis was a Western medievalist, so he would have been very familiar with that whole philosophical you know, tradition that, that we've referred to. My sense is, though, that, and I think he does actually say this at some point um, in his writings, it, it eludes me at the moment quite where that was, but it's more about removing the kind of obstacles people may have to believing in God, as opposed to needing to prove the existence of God. Now, those might seem very close, but I think they're actually rather different propositions, right? So for C.S. Lewis, in most of his theological writing, the existence of God is a given. You know, that's the starting point of theology. There's no, you, We don't need to kind of start from a, a kind of square one in which God doesn't exist, build him up, and then have our theology, right? So where he does engage in the kind of argumentation that you're talking about... I think what he's actually doing is thinking of people who maybe have formed intellectual objections to the existence of God as he himself had. I mean, he's in a perfect position to have done so because until he was, you know, from his late teens or mid teens to his around the age 30, he 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 had lived as an atheist. So he knew from the inside what some of those objections might be. So if it's a matter of, Intellectually or philosophically, showing that there are no objections to the existence of God—that's rather different from saying I need to prove to you, you know, from from a a zero base, you know, place that God exists. You know that I can somehow convince you of of that. I think that's the best we can do with with the 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 rational arguments and so forth. Precisely to because there the, the objections have been framed within a particular. You know way of thinking, so on that same plane you could counter those right and then once it's it's a bit like you know you're trying to do some farming right and you you come to a field that the what you can do is remove all of the boulders and all of the debris and so forth, and you prepare the ground, but ultimately you're not gonna make anything grow there I mean there's a kind of you have to there's a givenness to nature and growth that ultimately comes from God and, and you're gonna have to just resign yourself to that at a certain point but to begin with there is a human job uh you know a rationalist project of clearing the debris and and obstacles uh to to growth out of the way and so i think that should be the nature of that kind of 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 discussion or discourse is that we we look to see you know for whatever reason people have come to to believe that it's impossible to believe in god i mean one of the classic ones obviously is science you know oh well you know all god was ever framed as as the god of the gaps you know things we didn't understand in the world and as we've understood more and more through our science in various fields you know there's less and less of a need for god if that's the somebody's objection to the to believing in god then we can clear that up and say well no that was actually an incorrect vision of god in the first place he's not merely the god of the gaps you know let me tell you about the god I believe in, who's not only, you know, compatible with science as it has emerged, but actually is precisely what science has evoked more and more through discoveries and and so forth well that i mean that's not a proof for god but that does actually remove a common obstacle that people may have had and so you can discuss on, on that level it's a, a different set of principles but in the middle ages in the west they were definitely setting out to say okay assume god doesn't exist now let's build him up <laughs> and i just don't see the, the the point in that because you couldn't possibly come up with the right god by doing that
0: the so often When I hear arguments from atheists, whether they're popular atheists or in conversation or or anything like that, I always want to say, oh, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Mm -hmm. And I think so often uh, they portray a God that I, I think that Christians will sometimes accept their definition of God, and then move forward from there, as opposed to saying, oh, I actually don't believe in that God either, right? Um, Yeah, I'm not really going anywhere with that, but just an observation.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, let's not forget that one of the reasons Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire was that they were considered atheists right? Take that (laughs) for a moment and think about it, you know, because Christians didn't believe in any God that looked like any of the gods that the Romans, you know, recognized. And so, uh, you know, there's a sense in which there's a deep kinship between someone who's an avowed atheist and somebody who is a Christian in in the fullest and, and proper sense of the term. You know, I think it's quite right that we respond to most atheists and say, you know, we are too uh, on the basis of that, how they have framed their atheism. Now, of course, it should begin with a, an actual listening to them, right? So I, I don't believe in God. God can't possibly exist, they say. Well, tell me about it. You know, t- tell me about the God you don't believe in. And inevitably, if we listen carefully, there will be almost no correspondence between the God they've decided not to believe in and the god that we are called to believe in and that's you know really interesting because it gives a huge amount of you know territory to have those kinds of interesting discussions on but i've never yet met an atheist who whose atheism was about the theism that i actually you know profess now that's not the case i mean it could be that the the they are actually rejecting a god that sadly a lot of christians have fallen into the trap of believing in and i think that's another interesting avenue for for theological discussion is you know what is most people's vision of god and how about the people in our own churches you know what are they really thinking when you say the the term god the, the, the there's a corrective at the heart of, of orthodox christianity that It it should be obvious, but sadly, you know, isn't. And that is that God is revealed in and through Jesus Christ most fully, right? If you want to know what it means to be fully God and fully human, then we look to Jesus. But people often go about it the other way around, right? If you were to ask the question, is Jesus God? The question is predicated usually on this. I know who God is. How do I fit Jesus into that? Right? And so, you know, we have this predetermined view of what divinity is all about. And then we look for proof texts in the Gospels, in the New Testament, in the early church that say, see, look, people thought Jesus was God. And then we just go about our merry way. Now, having just kind of plonked our vision of Jesus into a pre existing false, you know, idolatrous view of who God is, but actually the scriptures invite us to do something altogether different, which is look to Jesus and understand who God is in and through him, through his incarnation in the fullest sense, not only his birth in Bethlehem, his, his earthly life and ministry and teaching and prophetic acts, but his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, that whole picture of who God is revealed to us through his you know through all of that saving mystery and that's a completely different you know way of framing the entire thing that should tell us who god is to the extent that we can know that you know there's that transcendent apophatic you know we said that negative speaking uh, theology that we have as well but but the 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 cataphatic the positive speaking aspect of theology should be completely revealed in who jesus christ Is and that leads to a different kind of God than the one, the first place most Christians believe in, but secondly, that most atheists are rejecting. Right, the 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 old man in the sky who you know is concerned about good and bad behaviors. I mean, ultimately, we've vested all of that in in the figure of Santa Claus as well. But he's probably the perfect embodiment of you know uh, of who most people think God is. uh, You know. just somebody who's kind of a cosmic supervisor who's checking making a list and checking it twice and you know i often find you know dealing with people in counseling or confession i mean one of the key things to work on is people's own impression or vision or understanding of who god is because so much of what we do in this life is dependent on on that understanding and people get it wrong From the beginning, they just try to fit Jesus into their pre-existing wrong perception. And then there's a whole bunch of people out there who just reject the whole thing,
0: because, of course, it's um, nonsensical. The argument that I think is the strongest against, let's say, popular atheism today and I, and of course, I think most of the atheism we're talking about here is sort of that popular level atheism. Uh, I, I think that there are levels of very sophisticated and nuanced atheism that I, I, I don't think we're diving too much into here today. Just This is mostly like the people you would encounter on the street or the popular books you might read about atheism. But one of the things that I think is the weakest about it is that it does not see itself as actually having a perspective. It sees, it sees people who are um, kind of the popular atheists today uh, and, and the language that they use, they there's the sense that they see atheism as the neutral stance mm-hmm. of humanity, right? That, that okay, we're going to strip everything away, strip all of these beliefs away, strip everything away. What are you left with? What is baseline humanity? Mm-hmm. That is atheism. Right. And that, I think, especially because most new atheists and popular atheists don't actually see that they are looking at the world through a lens. They think they are seeing the world objectively. And I I think that is probably the weakest part of that whole world view. Do you want to take it away Father Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, so that
1: is the kind of modern you know enlightenment you know perspective on things that well, first of all, that as human beings, we're fundamentally rationalist, you know, in orientation, individual thinkers, and that, you know, all of reality is kind of knowable objectively and, and so forth. And so, I mean, it's led to pr- tremendous advances in the sciences and, and so forth. And and there's a kind of, you know, additive theory of, of knowledge going on. You start from tabula rasa, the blank slate, and and you build up on that. But as I say, I would want to f- locate the underpinnings of that much earlier in in Western philosophical tradition, because whether they meant to or not, those medieval Christians who said, "Okay, let's prove the existence of God," were assuming the same understanding, right? Let's let's start from tabula rasa, blank slate, and now let's let's establish God's existence, and then we'll do our theology. Well, of course, they're teaching people to think that the neutral or base default state is, you know, some kind of lack of theism that you have to sort of construct that rationally on top of, you know, this kind of neutral framework that you've talked about, that the the lens to begin with is just some some kind of, you know, uh, neutral, you know, undistorting, you know, picture of of things, and you can easily build a framework of, of God on top of that. And atheists have just simply taken that Twelfth, thirteenth century, you know, medieval philosophical tradition, and, and, and run with it. Whereas, you know, no anthropologist would ever tell you that about, you know, that being the default state of, of human beings from time immemorial. Uh, the give, the greater givenness has been some kind of, you know, divinity, some kind of reality beyond, you know, what we know. And, and, uh, you know, of course. There are moderns who will simply say, "Well, that's the pre-modern, the unscientific, the you know, the the unsophisticated, primitive way of of seeing the world." Well, you know, okay, you can you could argue that on a kind of timeline that you know modernity arrives at a certain time, but modernity still stands even today on its own as a very unique and uh, you know different perspective. You know, there are a far far greater number of Theistic human beings than than atheistic, and you know there, you know you could argue that in fact religion worldwide has had a revival just in the last you know century compared to you know in the heyday of of modernity in the wake of the Enlightenment and then you know Darwin and so forth in the nineteenth century. But the, the base point here, you know, you're, is you're absolutely right. I mean, all of these things are lenses. You know, no, no. One stance on this is a neutral stance, and so you know, it's just about where you locate, you know, your givens. And as I say, the the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the the Greek Patristic tradition, and so forth, simply says you know, there's no point in doing anything other than assuming the existence of god and then we'll we'll go and we'll we'll, we'll construct our lives because that's the part that we can construct we can't construct reality but we can live you know a purposeful life within the reality that we know and that the best givenness to work from is you know this baseline human assumption that that god exists there is a creator and, and so forth and then of course within that we have this direct revelation of God in Jesus Christ and and so you know a lot of the the spiritual tradition of the east is not about saying let's prove you know a b or c here but rather let's live a b and c a way of living that is framed and guided and modeled patterned after the life of jesus christ and then let's see where where that gets there's a kind of scientific method embedded in our spiritual tradition you know that the purpose of this life is to be joined to the life of god so let's set about doing that and if if we can have some success in that if so theosis or salvation sanctification glorification is our telos, is our end game here. If we can demonstrate the replicability of this experiment, right? If we can live within this reality in this way, the givenness is God's existence, and we're going to receive the revelation of that God through Jesus Christ we're going to live in this particular way. Let's see where that gets us to. And we have the you know the the rec- replicability, the the scientific method of making saints as the track record. Of that, right? So it's a very Aristotelian, pragmatic, um, scientific method approach to spirituality, rather than the kind of let's go into an ivory tower and let's speculate about God's existence, his characteristics, about the philosophical implications of this, that, and the other thing. I mean, the, the whole Palamas and Barlum debate in the 13th, 14th centuries was precisely about this. You know, one of them is saying. But if you think about it, it makes no sense, you know. And the other one is saying, pray and you'll see, pray and you'll know, you know, enter into this relationship and the uncreated light will be revealed to you. And isn't that enough to go on, right? And so uh, there is no, you know, neutral, you know, lens here. So let's, as human beings, I think the Orthodox proposition here is let's, as human beings, set out with the best available data and lives that we could possibly do. And for us, that's embedded in our tradition of of worship and the saints and all of that centered around the revelation of God that we see in in Jesus. But you know, it's not about arguing that it's about ultimately you and I demonstrating that by living lives of sanctity ourselves.
0: We are almost at uh, the full length of time here, Father Jeffrey, but there's one more thing that I wanted to talk about. Shall we go on just a bit longer? Sure. Um, one is, uh, so back to that point of, you know, a- atheistic people tend to frame their perspective as the neutral perspective. But what I find very interesting is, and, and this is pointed out in books like The Atheist Delusions by David Bentley Hart, as well as Dominion by Tom Holland, which is a recent book that came out, that, um, People can't exist without their story, without their mythology, right, of who they are and how they came to be. And atheism as a movement has a mythology built into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's the mythology of, well, people were in darkness, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, a light shone upon those who sat in the darkness, Um, similar to the Christ story. Um, but then you have these little episodes, right, of Galileo standing up to the Catholic Church and saying, here's science. And they said, no, we don't want, we want superstition, right? And you have all these stories. And then, you know, what Tom Holland points out in that Galileo story is that, you know, the um, the the Catholic authorities at the time weighed the evidence and the leading evidence was actually against Galileo, even though Galileo ended up being uh, correct in the long run um uh so uh anyways long story short i think that uh atheists have their mythology and their stories that they don't see as mythology and uh, and identity creating stories
1: Mm -hmm. yeah well i think that story of moving from darkness to light is the one that that you know, it's the basis of the whole progress mythology. I mean, the telos of of modernity is progress, right? Is that you know we will know more and more, we'll be able to solve more and more by just applying the right you know thinking to this. And of course, the the backstory to that, if you know, if if Christianity and and demonstrating holiness, which I I wouldn't argue we've always and everywhere done i think one of the great things we need to do with you know our most important things we need to do in our dialogue with atheists is first of all apologize right because and often it's often the case we can't demonstrate the very thing that we're you know trying to to share with them you know well you know if you do this you will be better off because you'll be more loving more patient more kind you know it'd be lovely if we could just point to every Christian and, and and that would be an obvious conclusion to draw, but it hasn't been, right? And, and nor would has it been very helpful when the likes of the church have kind of clamped down on science and so forth, because you know we're not opposed to that really, you know, either. But if if the church, you know, in the Orthodox Church in the spirituality is framed by this kind of pragmatic, um, practical wisdom that is you argue Aristotelian and, you know, St. Paul picks up on that, you know, a whole project of phronesis, of practical wisdom in in his writing and so forth, you could argue that the the atheist, the the modern project, the progressive way of thinking is is that platonic idea of the cave, right? You know, that famous model that um, Plato uh, presents of, you know, of human beings who are just looking at the wall, far wall of a cave where they see shadows cast, and they think that's reality, right? Because the lights behind them, And they see shadows cast on the far wall. And so they're staring at that. And eventually, through a process of education leading out, you know, and through philosophy, uh, they turn around and they turn from the shadows to the true light, right? And so that story is told over and over again through, you know, the the history of the the unfolding of human knowledge and, and so forth. And so that the atheist mythology is that is the is Plato's cave of of saying you know you're you're looking at the wrong things what you can do through better philosophy, through better thinking, through through you know objective you know science and so forth is to turn and, and to face the light, and 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 that's exactly how they would frame themselves that they are looking at reality, whereas all of those of us who are you know tied up in our stories and and mythologies and religions and so forth, we're actually just looking at some kind of reflection of reality, and and what they are here to do those atheists is to educate us and and bring us to to look at things as they really are as opposed to you know some kind of stories about it but of course their very way of understanding reality is also a story is also you know a mythology as you say and so you know it, it, we can have these kinds of discussions and 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 hopefully through it see that there are different methodologies you know at work here and uh, one of the interesting and possibly you know, productive avenues forward is that the modern science project came to an end, you know, certainly in physics more than a hundred years ago, and maybe in the other hard sciences a little bit after that. And that is to say that you will not find very many, anyway, um, you know, pure pure scientists today who would argue for objective knowledge and objective reality. The 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 notion that you can in an you know completely clear lens look at the world as it is and describe it and know it you know fell away and some of the most exciting and interesting things in science today take on qualities of mystery and evoking wonder and awe in a way that you know we haven't seen certainly since you know people thought of god as a god of the gaps back you know in, in previous centuries and just couldn't make sense of why there were eclipses and whatever now we know why there are eclipses but you know can we possibly figure out how, you know, particles separated, you know, at greater than the speed of light between them can interfere with each other. You know, like it's just beyond the, the, possibility of human thought and so forth and I'm not arguing for a new god of the gaps here I'm just saying that scientists themselves understand that there's so much more to reality than they could ever know and it it does kind of lead to a place uh, of wonder and so there's maybe an opportunity to enter into that discourse and say you know why not you know entertain the possibility that there is greater reality than, than we could possibly know and here's a way of living through this world in a way that you know leads to something that is that is you know profoundly more significant than a life that is framed by you know you're, when you die that's it or that you know the, just get what you can while you can because you know life is hard and short and miserable um, you know, even if that were true. Wouldn't it be better to live the way, you know, that that we propose? That's my puddle glum argument. And we can maybe come back to that in another podcast for those who don't know the Mm -hmm. reference to the Narnia Chronicles.
0: Well, thanks, Father Jeffrey. I think that was really good. Great. Thank you. And we will see everybody next week. Well, that does it for another episode of the private podcast of Enacting the Kingdom. Thank you again for all your support. Please feel free to comment with any follow-up thoughts or questions. Father Jeffrey and I read them all. Looking forward to having you back soon.